If you're not already a Patreon subscriber, go to Patreon and look for The Theology Pit or go to TheologyPit.com and just find the link to Patreon. This month, the month of October 2020, you will get this entire two-hour interview for just a buck. Just a dollar. I mean, just that's it. That's it. Less than a cup of coffee. And you get the uncut two-hour interview with the Reverend Dr. Don Collett. Hi, this is John Hall. And this is Kathy Emmons. And we're from 101.5 Ward FM. And you've just fallen into the Theology Theology Pit. Pit. Well, hey everyone, welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is Theology Out of Pittsburgh and not to be confused with The Bottomless Pit because you know what we say, when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. I'm your friendly neighborhood podcaster, theologian, and pastor, Samson Kovach, coming back to you again with part two of my discussion with the Reverend Dr. Don Collett about his book, Figural Reading and the Old Testament Theology and Practice. I'm just, I'm not gonna sit here and talk for very long. I'm just gonna allow us to jump right back into where we were. If you haven't heard the first one, go ahead back and listen to it. And if you want to hear what's coming up, you know, in the next uh, hour or so, then you definitely have to go over to Patreon and just spend a buck. That's all it is. And you get all two hours uncut. Let's let's kind of look into the realm since what we were talking about with this like magisterial authority. Yeah. If we sort of promulgate this um, allegorical, we'll just say figural, like okay, right. looking at, at, at scripture, um, isn't there a danger to that being elevated Yeah, just as much? Because in, in a way, it's, it's not so much where the checks and balances, but who gets to say what the checks and balances are? Sure. Yeah. Who gets to say? Uh, I think that, of course, scripture needs to be interpreted and confessions need to be made. But where I would resist... I would resist the idea that there's a body of people that make a normative interpretation, you know, that that nobody else can really uh, challenge from Scripture. Shall we call that the priesthood of every believer, or shall we call it the right of the teaching office to critique other teachers? Well, I'll leave that up in the air for folks to sort out. But, uh, yeah, there is a danger that allegory or figure that's that's what I tried to get at in chapter two was the church following the lead of Reverend Childs on that discussion. The church has always struggled to keep these two worlds together and to unite the literal sense with the theological sense and to keep those worlds from coming apart or from one, the tail wagging the dog, you know, mm-hmm. allegory imposing itself on the literal sense. Uh, that, and I don't think that's going to stop and it hasn't stopped. Uh but I do think that it's worthwhile trying to to enter into that struggle, you know, and certainly letting allegory or figural sense or the theological interpretation of Scripture, which is really what figural sense is concerned with, um, you know, letting that take on a life of its own, uh, let alone, you know, something that comes into the hands only of a of a special enlightened magisterium mm-hmm. that can tell you what it means, uh, no, that would that would then weaken its relation to Scripture and would be something to avoid. Now, we um, on this show just talked to Dan Amar looking at the African context and things like that, and he was, he was saying that within um, the uh, African cultural understanding, the spiritual and the physical are so intertwined. Do you mm-hmm. think that in the West we've 
divorce that so much that it actually makes it difficult to look at something physical like we have, like, you know, the scripture or something on paper or creeds or anything like that, and bring that relational spiritual aspect into it, which is why a lot of people would be resisting a figural interpretation. Yeah. There's, and there's a number of forces that go into that. It's definitely a Western phenomenon. Now, what, what caused that? Some would say deism did that by banishing God from the world of ordinary experience and, and banishing his providence from that realm. Others would say uh, historicism in biblical exegesis in the 17th and 18th centuries, this this idea that you know the fundamental way to explain a biblical text is to expose its historical background rather than understand it in its canonical theological context. Uh, you know that's another place where it's uh, those things have happened. They've broken apart. But one that I try to address in the book, which my Roman Catholic friends have a deep concern about, is nominalism. Mm. Now, we think of nominalism, you know, usually more in the term, uh, you know, in, in more theological context, but it has a hermeneutical extension, the Roman Catholics argue, and that is when you hear Luther saying something like the literal sense is the theological sense, or Calvin says that explicitly, that's nominalism, because now you've got a world where language does its sense-making in a self-contained world. It doesn't need anything, you know, this is the so, kind of sola scriptura that doesn't need a theological ontology outside of itself. Certainly not a magisterium, yes, but uh, also it doesn't need a theological ontology, doesn't need a church tradition of any kind, an interpretive tradition. Yeah. So the Bible gets separated from the way it's been received by Christian communities down through time and its reception history. And in that world, uh, you know, there's there's a sort of sola scriptura that emerges that is the birth of secularism, as the Roman Catholics argue it, that this separates language from race, to put it in terms we've talked about, and it, it, it promotes a deeply anti-metaphysical way of reading scripture. It's interesting that when we look at Luther and nominalism. It seems the only place he wanted to divorce nominalism from within the world of theology was in justification. Yeah. His 97 thesis that he wrote in um, September of 1517, right before the 95, where he's slamming that, and especially the uh, Ficari quad in est, the, doing mm. the best that one can, um, that that's the only place. But yeah. everywhere else, nominalism seems to be appropriate. It seems to be yeah. okay. Yeah, it... Luther's relation to nominalism, I try to say I would call him a nominalist if, in the very narrow sense, if we mean by that, the figural or theological sense is immediately present in the literal sense. Mm -hmm. Does Luther mean by that that there's no God that exists out, you know, God's now in a book, he's not, he doesn't, he no longer exists outside the scripture? No, he doesn't mean that. I try to show that that's not, not his mm -hmm. point. What he's trying to say, he's worried about the quadriga, it's cutting off access, you know, the, instead of the figural senses being immediately present in the literal sense, so that when you read the Bible, you directly access God speaking to you. You now have, uh, you don't have this immediacy of the, theological sense in the literal sense it's something uh other you know theological or figural sense is something other than mm -hmm. the literal sense they thought that was an inherent problem in the quadriga that the quadriga didn't really 
you know, these different levels of meaning were... Define quadriga real quick for our audience. Oh, for the audience, yeah. The, the fourfold sense of Scripture in, in the traditional uh, early medieval tradition, some say it goes back to Cassian, others argue for different sources, but, you know, sometime around the 4th or 5th century, coming out of th- moves that were earlier made by Clement and Origen, you have this fourfold sense of Scripture. The literal sense... And then the threefold figural senses, which would be the allegorical sense, the tropological sense, and the anagogical sense. And the church traditionally lined those up with uh, allegorical sense is the doctrinal sense. It's what it's credenda. It's what the Bible teaches us about God. Uh, trop- tropological sense is agenda or diligenda. It's what teaches us what is to be done. Augustine says the answer to that is love God and love your neighbor. Uh, anagogical sense is what we hope for, speranda. Uh, so the worry that Luther had with this was when you start making multiplying distinctions, it weakens the integrity of, of something. It can, it can uh, weaken its internal relations so he wants to simply take a more economical approach. The literal sense is the, the, or the grammatical sense is the theological sense, or the grammatical sense is the prophetic sense, he'd sometimes say. Mm-hmm. Calvin's also in this train. And because of that, uh, you know, the, the, this opens the door that like nominalists, they're denying the need for universals outside language. Language is just a self-contained reality that um, you know, it, it it's just naming things, but it has it has no metaphysical moorings that make it uh, that enable it to be what it is. So the worry is that you know this literal the reason to go back to Dan Omar's comment on the union of spiritual and physical. The Roman Catholic tradition would say there was a hermeneutical version of nominalism that got started with Luther and Calvin and the Reformation. Well, it actually goes back further. It got started with 14th century nominalism, the fall from Aquinas, as I call it. Mm -hmm. Uh, And this is the soil the Reformation grew out of. And it separated the language world, the linguistic world. uh, which is part of the physical world we inhabit as human beings, from the spiritual world. And it gave birth even to modern atheistic secularism. Now, Thomas Lukeson argues that in his book uh, called Literal Figures. The whole, he's, he's, he's obviously got commitments to Catholicism, but uh, he, that's what he argues throughout that book is that the Reformation really gave birth to this divorce of spiritual and physical that now governs modern secularity. And it did it through a nominalistic view of language enshrined in the statement, the literal sense is the <laughs> theological sense. That's, uh, I don't know if that helps clarify it a little bit. Well, yeah, in, in your book on 116, you say, uh, the literal sense is capable of embracing scripture, not only in its grammatical or primary sense, but also in its figural or allegorical sense. Right. I think I think the the reason, you know, I, I have a view of the literal sense as the productive potential of scripture to speak through different contexts, not just be limited to an original historical context back there, which mm-hmm. is somehow the job of the preacher or the historical exegete through reconstruction to summon into their present. It speaks directly into our present because of the one who is speaking in it. 
And I think that's what Luther's trying to recover with, a, or and Calvin, with a, you know, the immediacy of God's voice in Scripture. They're worried that the quadriga might, might this analogical predication that it's built on, might, and the multiplication of distinctions might weaken the immediate the relation of immediacy between the theological sense and the literal sense. Well, what really jumped out to me uh, to me uh, in that sentence that you wrote was that the literal sense is what is capable of embracing Scripture, either in the grammatical yeah. or in the figural. Yeah. And so this kind of goes back to the the original question when I when I asked you and I said uh, later on we're going to get to the obsessum of verba and the obsessum of vox. So. Yeah. It, when we look at scripture, usually that's an either or argument. Is it is the inspiration? Is it the word, the letters themselves, the words themselves, or yeah. is it the meaning, the voice of God that is yeah. that is coming out yeah. of it? So it kind of seems like it's a both and, right? You know, here yeah. that yeah. it's, it's well, not, that's what I would argue. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I've heard that about you. <laughs> <laughs> well, I. I do. You know, you might have noticed George Sumner. Uh, he's my friend. Uh, he's bishop down in Dallas now. But uh, George, George, in his blurb on the book, kind of built on, you know, he's trying to heal some splits here. Uh, that's, that's a very perceptive. I'll have to thank George for that person <laughs> if I ever see him next time. Uh, I am trying to do that. Because I don't think that I think that there's been in the in the polemical environment between uh, the Reformation and those in Roman Catholic voices, there's been a lot of, now I would have other issues. I know this is not the only issue, but in this issue, the reading of scripture uh, and the hermeneutic scripture, I think there was quite a bit of talking past one another Mm -hmm. that happened. And has Vatican II alleviated that? Well, somewhat, but there's still issues there. So but there's still issues in the Catholic Church. <laughs> yes. Get out of town. Well, I, I might just uh, a recent book by my ex supervisor in PhD work, Christopher Seitz. Um, in his book Convergences, he's got three or four what I take to be very illuminating chapters on the relation of Scripture to tradition and how, how the literal sense is being constructed, the understanding of it, the words of Scripture in the in the Vatican. Two statement de verbum, and then there's a later statement that he has. I think it's in 2010. I can't remember the the name of it, but they've they've come out with a, an, another statement in the Catholic tradition, and he engages those and shows that you know there's still a little there's still a little bit of fuzziness there. But so I, I'm not one of those who thinks Vatican II solved the whole problem. Where people will say, well, all of this stuff you said in here, Don, you know that's pre-Vatican II. You need to you need to reckon with Vatican II. I have reckoned with Vatican II, and I still think these issues are in the air. Mm-hmm. I mean, I find very intelligent, much more intelligent than I am, Roman Catholic thinkers like Han, Hans von Balthasar. Yeah. And this is, uh, or even people that converted maybe from an evangelical background and became Catholic, like Scott, S- Hahn. Scott Hahn, or also Matt Levering. And, you know, he, he had a. Scott Hahn's local boy here, Pittsburgh. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's yeah. true, yeah. <laughs> I. I fu- The Theology Pit is a partner-funded ministry. Please consider partnering with us by making a donation at thetheologypit.com. Just scroll to the bottom of the page, hit the donate button, and make a contribution to the best Theology Pit podcast on the internet. Now let's get back to the show. This is common 
for them to say, you know, the Reformation was born in nominalism. This sola scriptura radicalism yeah. is an anti-metaphysical. In fact, Matt Levering writes a book called Scripture and Metaphysics, even though it's dealing with people like Bauckham and, and N.T. Wright and others. This is a this is a big burden of the book. Yeah. Is it here you here you have it again, you know, that there's just this anti-metaphysical bent. Mm-hmm. And that's been part of the Roman Catholic historical apologetics against the Reformation for at least four or five hundred years. Well, a healthy dose of humanism also th- yeah. taking this philosophy, this understanding, and forcing it back into the you know ad fontes, like to the yeah. sources, like yeah. going back there. So it's it's sort of like, all right, we're going to take the f- uh, philosophy of the 14th, 15th, 16th century now yeah. instead of the philosophy of the second and third century. Yeah. And force it back into yeah. scripture. Yeah. But that, but we're but we go through the second and third century in order to do it, to validate yeah. what we're doing. I I find these debates I one of the things I tried to argue in the book, and it's not an exhaustive treatment, and I I refer the readers to Ephraim Rodner's chapter four of his book Time in the Word, mm. where he tries to He's show Canadian, them. right? <laughs> well, he is now. He's he's actually Jewish Christian, but uh <laughs> Um, Ephraim shows that uh, he's, he's based out of Wycliffe College in Toronto. Yeah, that's the Canadian connection. Uh, Ephraim tries to show, and I think fairly well, that contrary to what is usually argued, um, you know, the, the nominalism, however we define that, didn't really destroy figural reading, which is to say it didn't destroy the, the relation of of theology to the literal sense, uh, or you know, metaphysical realities to the language of Scripture, um, you know. But I, that's a long case he makes there, and he, you know, he's he's engaging that point. He he thinks that's the case because even though there may be problems with the way nominalism construes biblical language, they didn't give up on the doctrine of God's creative omnipotence, which is what drives figural readings potential in within the literal sense. So I, I'm sympathetic to that, and I say if you're listening to this and you're saying that's good, but you know I, I can't buy it, maybe go and engage chapter four of Time in the Word and see what you think. Mm-hmm. Uh, he says scripture does require uh, a metaphysic, uh, but it doesn't have to be a particular metaphysic like, say, Platonism, which you might find in something uh, argued in uh, maybe Neoplatonism and someone like Hans Boersma. Uh, we do need a two-world ontology, but let's not identify it too closely with any one particular philosophy. Well, I would say Genesis 1 already sets it up for us anyhow. We have a creator-creature distinction there, and yeah. I don't see any reason to really tinker with that. <laughs> well, I think to give, they give our audience sort of more of a, a pragmatic approach. Yeah. They can think about the way if someone approaches them and says, and talks about the theophanies yeah. that we see, and they would accept that. They yeah. would accept that understanding, even though the word theophany isn't in the Old Testament. It's not directly saying that this is a, sure. you know, a, yeah. a way of understanding. Yeah, but it's a divine manifestation. Yeah. But yeah. they're taking a philosophy they were given and then looking at scripture through that philosophy. Right. Right. Uh, This, this is something that's probably inescapable on one level uh, because of the traditions we come from. We bring pre understandings as Gadamer would say to scripture. The question Mm -hmm. is, does scripture have power to reformulate those pre understandings in accordance with the theological truth? It's, seeking to establish in our lives. I would say, yes, it does. Mm-hmm. 
its voice is not so merged into church tradition that it can't help us anymore. Yeah. Well, some traditions hold to um, that the word of God is not so much scripture, but where the the preached word from scripture meets the understanding of the person receiving it. Yeah. And then that's where it is. That's um, when we had uh, Dave Howells, Pastor Dave Howells on in Pentecostalism. He was speaking yeah. that way. And I said, wow, that sounds a lot like Karl Barth. <laughs> yeah, it does. It Well, he's, yeah, preaching preaching has a pretty high place in Barth's schematic. Um, I, I, would, I wouldn't disagree with that except to say that for me, that would not undermine the otherness or the objectiveness of Scripture as a word of God apart from preaching. It would be an extension of it. Yeah, I would agree with yeah, that. Yeah, that's you know, and some yeah. sometimes there's a worry there that you know with Bard, it's it's as though Scripture is has no objective status as the Word of God. It becomes the Word of God in Correct. preaching. Yeah, yeah, that's the worry there. Yeah. I look at Bart now and. I read something in the early parts of his dogmatics, and then I get to the later, and I'm like, huh, it seems like he's either moved or maybe he's just restating it in a clearer way. Mm-hmm. Many of the things I thought about Bart, uh, they either get clarified by Bart himself or perhaps uh, just, a, you know, I come to realize that the distinctions aren't as sharp as I thought they were. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me, let me talk to you about... Um one of the uh, swear words that you use in your book here. Okay. Um, in, in talking about this uh, historical gap and everything, um, you know, I can't believe you put the cuss word of Pelagian in here. So we're going we're going to adjust that. Oh no, address that here. By the way, one of the editors wanted that taken out. Just I, so I, you know. I my my only note next to that was yep. You know what this is. So so just to kind of set it up for the for the audience here. Um, you, you write that in the historical, uh, I have my, my book dart over it, the historical critical modes for reading scripture, overcoming the reality of historical distance mandates the need for historical reconstruction in order that readers of scripture may be reunited with its theological sense. Once the distinction between the Bible's literal and theological sense is construed in this way, modernity's historical reconstruction projects are no longer merely helpful or not, as the case may be, but required in order to gain access to Scripture's theological meaning. And you go on to say, and thus by extension, modern variation of the Pelagian theme of salvation by works in the case of one's historical works. Yeah, yeah. yeah when we think of salvation by works, we, we're often thinking in the soteriological rather than hermeneutical context. We're thinking somebody thinks they can earn their salvation by doing good works. And so they do good works in in their lifetime. Mm-hmm. I think in the hermeneutical context, we have a version of that also, where, as we talked about, the literal and theological sense have come apart. That's one of the things. And oddly enough, I footnote Rusty Reno's book there where he, he makes this very point. The text is the race. He keeps on saying this. This strikes me as very close to Luther and Calvin, although I'm not, I'm not sure when I wrote made that point, uh, Rusty was aware of that. He, he may or may not have been. Uh, he actually got it from Hans Frey. But uh, you know, the reason they want to do that is to say, look, we don't summon the word into our present The point of saying something like the literal sense is the theological sense is to remind us that God speaks directly in Scripture. We don't, once those two things have come apart, 
it falls on the bur- the burden falls on the historian to reconstruct uh, that world in, in order to bring it into our present, and so it becomes a way of salvation by works. Yes, mm-hmm. God does speak to you because you do a work that enables Him to speak to you. And in fact, you're indispensable to the church because since this split between the literal and the theological exists, they need you, the professionally trained historian, to recover, quote unquote, the lost world of the Bible and bring it into our present. You're indispensable. You're functioning essentially like a magisterium. When you, you know, so Protestant historical critical reading has its own counterpart yeah. to the to the magisterium that the Reformation was objecting to. Well, and I would even want to say that this does in within Reformed theology does push it into a salvific issue because yeah. um, faith being uh, articulated as the notitia sensus and fiducia, or the, the knowledge, the assent, and the trust, yeah. that knowledge only can come specifically from a scriptural interpretation mandate. So therefore, if you don't have the proper philosophy for understanding scripture put in place, i.e., therefore you cannot have faith, you are not justified, you are damned to hell. Yeah, that- so it really... Is is something that that holds the salvation model of yeah. of reformed theology together. So you can't go it this way and say, "Well, we're just talking about a hermeneutic here." It's like, no, you're talking about eternality in within the the reformed realm. Oh, sure, yeah. yes, I I I think I I do I try to make the case. I, I remember being taught that faith had those three mm-hmm. uh, elements. I was trained that in the reformed tradition. Um. You know, depending on how that's understood, yes, it, it could be helpful. Uh, it, but I, I think that the saints of God are, are justified by faith in both Testaments. And what does that mean to be justified by faith? Is that just something that Paul talked about? No, it means trust in the promise of God because that promise, you know, the promise given in his word, that promise is linked to Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. I may not understand all the historical details if I'm an Old Testament believer, that are coming in the first advent of Christ. That's not what justifies me. Mm-hmm. What justifies me is I put my faith in that promise that is linked to the one who will be made flesh and redeem me in time. Yeah. And someone would call that a work. Yeah. Because yeah. as um, Dr. David Maxwell uh, mm-hmm. said from Concordia Lutheran Seminary, uh, that merit is defined as anything you do to motivate God to look favorably upon you. So therefore, oh, okay. if you're putting your faith in him in order to get something back. Oh, you are actually motivating God sure. to, to do that. So, you're instrumentalizing God. Yeah, which uh, R.C. Sproul in, in his um, uh, commentary on the Westminster Confession said that faith is an instrument like a tool that you would use to work on something. Yeah. And so so within the Reformed tradition, faith it does have this, this I, I want to say a merit base, but you are just not allowed to admit that. Oh, okay. <laughs> that that seems to be. I mean, well, when you read like confusing statements from John Murray and everything, like you're just like, what? What is he even saying? But uh, but no, I've I've backed some reformed professors in into the corner on that one, and and they've admitted that yes, you have to do something oh. in order to. I mean, faith always precedes justification. Sure. It necessarily has to. Uh, my argument and, and my thesis argument was that it's not your faith; it's the faith of another. And yeah. so it is. So it is Christ that precedes it. Your faith is the evidence that you have been justified, and the expression for another to see and for you. So to give you to another. read the uh, Galatians, uh, the genitive there, it, the faith of Christ. 
rather than the faith of the subject. Yes, I read it properly. Oh, okay. Yes, right. <laughs> it's, it's, fine. it's fine to say that. Um, I, I read and, it properly. And really, uh, yeah, my uh, uh, for uh, Bishop Lamarck and my um, uh, Greek exegesis paper was on that, on yeah. that, that particular section between the subjective and the objective genitive and looking into that. And um, I, I found some really interesting things in it, but there are other places also. There's a nice um, chiastic structure in uh, Romans 3 from uh, 3... 23, I think it is, to um, 5-2, yeah. 5-1 or 5-2, um, that's, that's just beautifully constructed to show that uh, the, the, the apex of it, the pinnacle of it, is that um, Abraham was sealed with uh, the promise of the Holy Spirit, that that is, so it's, it's always from another, it's never from us. So therefore, faith can be instrumental, but it can't be your faith that's instrumental. Thank you for listening to The Theology Pit. Please take a moment to rate our podcast and leave a comment about what you like or what you don't like. Each rating and comment helps others discover this show. Don't forget to visit us at thetheologypit.com to make a donation. While on the website, we would appreciate it if you would share these podcasts with your friends and family on social media. Our Facebook page is also titled The Theology Pit. Stop over and give us a like. If you have any questions or topics you would like to hear discussed on the podcast, please write to Samson at thetheologypit.com. That's Samson, spelled S-A-M-S-O-N, at thetheologypit.com. Now, here's a preview of next week's show. That problematizes our understanding of time as linear, and that's one of the things I try to get into in the start of the book, is that that's uh, played, uh, you know, wreaked havoc with... Uh, quite a bit of the logic of figural reading but as you're talking about it it also you know how could the saints of God in the Old Testament participate in the redemption of Christ before Christ came as the word made flesh and redeemed them Um, that that's that's another way in which the linear time situation this and more on the next theology pit